It's Palm Sunday. And so as I was thinking about Palm Sunday, I thought, what is it that we should hear from God's word on Palm Sunday? And the, the phrase that kept resonating in my mind was, bear the cross, bear the cross. So I thought, okay, we're going to have to talk about bearing the cross. Harrison recorded his video uh, on Tuesday. I had already prepped my sermon, and uh, I took a look at it Wednesday, and Harrison quoted, bear the cross. I thought, okay, this is what God has for us to hear, is the need to bear the cross. Now, as I say bear the cross, I want you to understand what exactly that means. I've heard a lot of people use the phrase, well, it's my cross to bear. That's a phrase we need to be careful about. So just because you forgot to get the roast out and you're stuck eating something that you didn't really want to eat in the evening does not mean it's your cross to bear. It's a lot more than that. Just because the dog ate your shoes while you were at church does not mean it's your cross to bear. There is a lot more to bearing the cross than just the minor inconveniences of life. What does it mean to truly take up your cross daily? Let's look in our Bibles at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read together starting in verse 21 and going through 27, and then we'll put it all in context and sort of put the whole story together. But let's begin with the scripture, Luke chapter 9, verse 21 through 27. Luke writes, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. In the book of Luke, This passage actually represents a major transition in Luke's writing. We all have probably heard the story of the triumphal entry. If not, I'm going to tell you. On Palm Sunday, Jesus had his disciples go and get him a donkey. Jesus sat on that donkey, rode into the city of Jerusalem, while people laid their coats on the ground, waved palm branches, and declared, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They welcomed Jesus into the city of Jerusalem as king. But Jesus knew better. You see, all the way back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, for the first time in verse 21 through 27, revealed what the real plan was. The real plan was not a conquering king who would wipe out the enemies the Roman Empire, the real plan was a conquering king who would defeat the ultimate enemy, death itself, through his own death. 
Jesus reveals this in Luke chapter 9. But in order to get here, I want to start by looking earlier in the book of Luke. If you look earlier, and you're welcome to flip pages in your Bible if you'd like, you'll see that leading up to Luke chapter 9, there were parables. Jesus told stories, parables about how the world operates and how God desires the world to operate. Jesus performed some pretty significant miracles, both in Luke chapter 8. Some of the things that Jesus did, he told the parable of the sower. He told the parable of the lamp. Both parables to indicate that the gospel message needs to go out and be received. Jesus calmed the storm before Luke chapter 9. He cast out demons. He healed. He even raised the dead. Jesus had demonstrated in the preceding chapters that he was special. He was something unique. He was different than anyone who had ever been before. Jesus proved that he was the Messiah. If you look one verse earlier, a verse I chose not to include in the big part of my reading, at Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, God's Messiah. This is Peter's mountaintop experience. He has recognized Jesus for who he is, God's Messiah. And in the stead of of thunderous, roaring applause at the revelation of God's Messiah, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Keep it quiet. Why? Because God had a different plan. God had a special plan. Verse 50, Jesus proclaims his death. In verse 57 and forward, Jesus talks about the cost of following Jesus wanted his disciples to know, yes, they, 1 through 22, is a God incarnate. Jesus, God himself in the flesh, modeled complete self-sacrificial love. You are God's Messiah. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone that. Instead, he switches and he says, the son of man. Jesus begins calling purposeful choice that Jesus was making. It probably, almost certainly, comes out of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gives a prophecy where he talks of one who is like the Son of Man. And in that prophecy, Daniel talks that this individual will be granted privileges that can only be attributed to God. God like privileges. That means it must be God. The Son of Man must be God. But the Son of Man does something else special for Jesus here. Messiah was a political term. The Jews had taken this term Messiah, which means anointed one in Hebrew, and they had turned it into a political term. The term Messiah came to mean the one who would revolt against the Roman Empire and overthrow the Roman overlords. Because the Jews thought their biggest problem in life was Rome. They were wrong. Their biggest problem in life was not Rome. The biggest problem in life was sin. That is our biggest problem too. Our biggest problem in life is our sin. The title Son of Man avoided the politics while denoting the power of God. God is perfect. We see that in Daniel 7. 
God is omnipotent. We see that in Daniel 7. God is all-powerful. We see that in Daniel 7. And so Jesus uses this title, Son of Man. Perfect, powerful, omnipotent, important. But look what follows in verse 22. He starts off by calling himself the Son of Man. And then he uses a word that we would not expect for somebody perfect, powerful, and omnipotent. Must. Is there anything that you must do? Kids, probably the answer is yes. Are you going to clean your room tonight? Maybe. Your parents have rules. They have things that they tell you you must do. You look forward to the day when you are an adult and nobody tells you what you must do. Guess what? It's not coming. (laughs) But we have this vision, right? We vision that the person at the top of the pyramid does not have anybody who tells them what they must do. The person at the top doesn't have rules they must follow. And the son of man must. God himself must do something. What in the world is going on here? The reality is that the son of man was born to die. The son of man must. It is necessary for the son of man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, to be killed on the third day, and the good news, to be raised again. The title Son of Man conveyed power, but in Daniel, the title Son of Man also conveyed suffering. Daniel actually prophesied about this in chapter 7. The Son of Man came to die, born to die. The reality of our sin, the reality of our burden, the biggest problem that we have is the only solution came from the biggest God to submit himself and to die. Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a problem. It's a universal problem. It covers all of us. We have all sinned. And it gets worse because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death, permanent separation from God. But Romans 5.8 tells us that for God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the beauty of what Christ is telling his disciples here. You call me Messiah, and I am. Jesus is the Messiah. But don't put your focus on that. The real thing you need to know is that Jesus is the son of man, the one who is God himself, who was born to die. But who, as we see in the last part of verse 22, defeated death. The son of man defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 tells us, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ was raised from the dead, the first fruits of all of us who deserve death. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. The Son of Man came to die, but not just to die, to rise again and defeat death. So, my first action step. The first thing that I want you to do, double check. Ask yourself, have you accepted God's self-sacrificial love? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Accepted his gift of death on the cross as payment for your sins? Remember in context what's happening. Jesus has just been declared the Messiah. That's a big deal. We sang Hosanna. We sang about forever you are glorified. Jesus will reign eternally. He is king. But before Jesus can be king, he needs to be savior. And that's what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 9. They declare him Messiah and he says, now don't tell anyone because there's something more important for you right now. Before I can be your king, I must be your savior. Ask yourself, have you accepted God's self-sacrificial love? If not, that is step one. That's the ground level. That's where you want to start. Before anything else can matter, we must accept Jesus as our personal savior. But then Jesus goes on. In verses 23 through 26, what we see is that God incarnate showed his followers what it means to bear the cross. Jesus showed his followers what it really looks like to bear the cross. In verse 23, he says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Cross-bearing is not normal for us, and so it needs to be renewed regularly. Cross-bearing is not normal in order to understand that, we need to understand the cross. Crucifixion, death on a cross, probably was invented by the Babylonians earlier and adopted by the Romans. And when I say adopted, I really should say perfected. The Romans figured out how to do it. The narratives of crucifixion. You take an individual, you beat them, you whip them, until they're a mess. Then you take a large wooden beam and you make them carry it down the street. Think railroad tie. They're not light. You make them carry it down the street in the mess that they're already in physically. Then you nail them to it. You hang it on a vertical pyre and allow the person to hang from their hands. Crucifixion typically took between 6 and 48 hours to cause death. And there were a variety of reasons why that time span was so long. Generally, people died of asphyxiation, suffocating. But uh, they could also die of heart attacks. They could die of blood loss. Um, Roman soldiers were required to stay at the cross until the individual died. So it was very common for the Roman soldiers to actually light a fire at the bottom of the cross to try to 
speed up the process, to break bones, to lacerate, to create further bleeding. Anything they could do to make this a little bit faster so they could go home a little bit sooner. But the Romans perfected the way to make you suffer. And everybody knew what that was because the Romans would put people on display. Criminals would be put on the cross as a warning to anybody who might themselves become a criminal. So you put them on display. So everybody knew what it meant to bear the cross. So when Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus is saying daily on purpose because this is not normal behavior. This is not something that is natural to us. You must do it daily because otherwise you're not going to do it. Because your natural instincts will tell you, I need to take care of myself. What do you mean deny myself? Naturally, we are selfish. Jesus says, bear your cross daily. Ultimately, this is the ultimate paradox. Cross-bearing is a paradox. Because what Jesus has said is deny yourself. Put others first. Put everything else before yourself. And this is a paradox. And Jesus goes into this. Look at what he says in verse 24. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. That's a paradox. That doesn't make sense in our humanness. But whoever loses their life, for me, will save it. Actually, Jesus spoke paradoxically a lot from a human perspective. In Luke 6, 22, he told us that the ultimate blessing is opposed to what we would normally think of blessing. He says, blessed are you when people hate you. What do you mean I'm blessed when people hate me? Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you because of the Son of Man. Jesus says, here's a paradox. When people reject you, you are actually blessed. Another paradox in Luke 18. Jesus said to them, no one who has left home, wife, brothers, sisters, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age as in the age to come, eternal life. We might call these paradoxes that Jesus presents as the divine law of unintended consequences. When we give up ourselves, God works and brings about unintended consequences, things that we didn't intend to happen, and blesses us abundantly. If you have faithfully tithed, you've probably experienced this. You begin giving to God, and somehow the checkbook has more money in it. It happens. Talk to people who do this. It really does happen. The divine law of unintended consequences, God blesses abundantly to those who deny themselves who set their own desires aside and truly bear the cross, accepting whatever burden God asks you to carry. You might be looking at this and you might be saying, okay, that's wonderful. Like that takes a step of faith. How, how in the world do I come up with the personal fortitude to do this, the grit to bear the cross daily? Like I might be able to do this for a day, how do I get to where I can do it long-term? And the answer Jesus gives is in verse 26. What he says is that cross-bearing requires you to look further than you may be used to looking. It requires you not to look at tomorrow. 
If you want to faithfully bear the cross, faithfully serve Jesus, don't look at tomorrow because that's not far enough out. Jesus says, look to eternity. Look further than you're used to looking. Look at verse 26. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the father and of the holy angels. You might think that if you shun Jesus, tomorrow will be better. And it might be, but eternity will not. Jesus says, look further than you're used to looking. Look much, much further. One of the things that is enjoyable that you all know that I enjoy is flying airplanes. And if you have ever experienced a bad landing, it's usually because the pilot's not looking in the right spot. That's usually why a landing is bad. So when you're landing an airplane, the trick is to look at the end of the runway. Don't look at where you're hoping to land. That might not make sense. You might say, what? No, that really is the trick. Because if you look straight down, your eyes are very incapable of telling you how high off the ground you are. If you've ever been on a ladder, you've experienced this. If you look down, you don't know how far you are off the ground. If you look out, your eyes actually are good at doing that. And so whenever I'm flying with somebody and you know, things don't quite seem to be going right, you ask the question, where are you looking? Are you looking at the end of the runway? Look at the end of the runway. If you look at the end of the runway, this landing is going to go well. If you focus right here where you want to land, we're going to bounce, and it's not going to be much fun. It's the same way in life. If you focus looking right here where you're at right now, or even looking at tomorrow, you're going to bounce. It's going to be rough. If you look at the end of the runway, you look at eternity, then you'll be able to measure how you're doing. You'll be able to measure if you are bearing the cross. You'll be able to continue bearing the cross because you will see what the goal is. So my action step is to check your eyes. Where are you looking? Are you looking at today? Are you looking at tomorrow? Or are your eyes focused on eternity as everything else sort of happens around you, but your focus is on eternity? Verse 27 is a beautiful verse. And verse 27 tells us that the followers of God must look to the not yet while embracing the already. Now, I've thrown in some colloquial theological terms here, so I'm going to need to explain this. Let's look at verse 27. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And there is a really challenging exegetical question. Exegesis means what does the text say? Okay, Eisegesis means what do I think the text says? roughly speaking. Exegesis is what does it truly say? What does it mean? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So who's standing there? That's the first question we should ask. The answer is the disciples. Okay. So some of the disciples will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So then the next question is, what is the kingdom of God? And this is the one where theologians wrestle all over the place with. Some theologians will say that this is 
the full kingdom. This is everything. It doesn't make sense. There's a number of reasons. God promised David a descendant who would bring about an eternal kingdom. Uh, another issue is that uh, Isaiah 9.6 promises that it'll be a physical kingdom. And Isaiah 11.11 11 says that Israel will be fully restored. So we don't have the case where we have a king sitting on the throne in a physical kingdom in the nation of Israel. Those were promises that were made that hasn't been fulfilled. So what in the world is this kingdom of God that we're talking about? Other theologians say, well, some of them died, but maybe not like, maybe it was just talking about physical death, but they didn't spiritually die. That's getting into too much of the weeds. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. Jesus, immediately following this, goes up to the mountain and is transfigured before three of the disciples. Jesus has the transfiguration immediately following this statement. Jesus goes up to the mountain, and the disciples get to experience the joy of the already. Some aspects of the kingdom are in place. Jesus is glorified. They get to see his glory. They get to participate in his glory. We need to enjoy the joy of the already. The full kingdom has not been realized. There is so much more to come. But part of the kingdom has been realized. Namely, Jesus is glorified. Sin is defeated. The victory has been won. Now, after a war, when the peace treaty is signed, do you know that it takes some time for peace to actually be realized? At the conclusion of the Civil War, it took a while before the fighting actually stopped. At the conclusion of World War II, it actually took a while before the fighting actually stopped. It takes time, even after defeat, for defeat to be fully realized across the entire world. And I think the same thing is true here. Sin has been defeated. Jesus defeated death. He defeated sin. We know the victory is won. We are waiting for that to be fully realized. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We get to have communion with God through the Holy Spirit. One day, we will have face-to-face -face interactions with God as Jesus reigns on the throne. But right now, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The joy of the already is something that we must embrace while also expecting the not yet. Your flesh still battles with sin. My flesh still battles with sin. I still am tempted, and I do the things which I wish I did not do, as the Apostle Paul stated. One day, I will experience the perfection that comes from having seen Christ face to face and given a new body, and I will see him as he is, and I will be like him. Not God, but sinless, without the sin nature. The curse remains. It's springtime, and... Many of you are getting excited and planting various things, and guess what? In three months, you're going to be weeding or less. The curse still remains. One day, God is going to lift that curse. Our world is a world of decay. We're remodeling our sanctuary because things decay. Things go bad. The joy of the already is that the battle has been won, 
Christ is victorious. He is glorified. But the expectation of the not yet is that we are still waiting for that full inauguration of the kingdom. Jesus said, truly I tell you, some are standing here. They will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. They got to see Christ in his glory. But they still had to wait for the ultimate fulfillment. So what should we do? I think we need to take a moment and thank God for the already while you dream of the not yet. Thank God for what he has already done right now, but don't lose your focus. Remember, look at the end of the runway. Dream of the not yet while you take joy in the already. This week, as we go into Easter, as we celebrate, I want us to celebrate this monumental event that was millennia in the making. Have you ever worked really hard to prepare a meal? Maybe it's uh, you're going to smoke a particular piece of meat, a brisket or something. So you spend a few hours planning out what rub you're going to use on it. You sit, let it sit. Then in the middle of the night, because it never is a convenient hour when you're going to start, in the middle of the night, you get up, fire up the smoker, set your temperatures, bring out the meat, place it in the smoker. As you climb back into bed, you begin telling your wife how good it's going to taste, and she rolls over and says, go to sleep. <laughs> when morning comes around, and then by morning I mean like 3 a.m. because you've got to babysit this thing, right? You get up, you check your temperatures, you adjust your temperatures, you go lay down on the couch. Finally, real morning comes around for the rest of us, and you go and check it again. You unwrap the meat, put it in some foil, stick it back in the smoker. And you continue to do this all morning long. Finally, mid-afternoon, you finally start to set up the table and prepare your sides. When it's finally time to eat, you sit down, you cut off the meat, you taste it. It's a beautiful, smoky flavor. And what do you do? You gobble down the rest of the meal and move on. <laughs> Let's not let that be Easter. Easter was a millennia in the making. Let's take time to fully enjoy this week. The event that brought about the already and gives us the hope, the expectation of the not yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you came, that you gave yourself on the cross, securing our victory over sin, your victory over sin on our behalf. Father, I pray that we would put that focus on eternity, knowing what is coming, realizing what we already have, Help us to put that focus in the right place so that as we are asked to daily bear our cross, 
to take up the shame of the cross, the pain of the cross, so that we would remain faithful to you. Not because of anything we have done, but because we look at your victory and we know it's worth the cost. Father, I pray that we would be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.